I'm Jason Bailey-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Before we start the show, I wanted to say I am sorry for not posting anything for the last month. I have been traveling, and I have been in the studio working. There are people that need to have their interviews heard. So you will be getting a rush of these things coming up over the next few weeks. Today's guest is Jake Keen Maiman. Jake is a LA artist and genuinely, and I always say this about people, but I mean it when I say it, genuinely one of the nicest guys in the world. I had my show uh, in New York City last March and Jake and his wife Jillian sent me flowers the day of the opening. And it was just, it was incredibly thoughtful and that's just the guy he is. In this interview, we go into his process, and normally I don't speak about the process or or people's uh, work habits in the studio because I think it's a little didactic. You you can go look these things up if you want to, but the reason we talk about Jake's process is because his study of history and how he incorporates that into the work, it's hard to see. He sort of masks it, and it's a really clever way. I feel very fortunate to have had Jake in the studio, and thank you for taking the time, man. So... Here's Jake. All right, Jake, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me, Jason. (laughs) Who was the professor that you had on of yours? And he would say things to you and be like, well, you know, Jason... Uh, Dan Cameron. That was amazing. Yeah, he I was, like, really, I'm, I'm I was being th- lectured to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, but it was kind. And, in a nice way. Yeah. He was like, well, Jason, you have to understand. I want to start doing that in general in life. Like, well, you know Jillian. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Jillian is your wife. Jillian is my wife. She's my the best person in the world, aside from you, Jason Baylor-Losh. Um, <laughs> Jillian is... I cannot say enough nice things about Jillian. And I think the... You know, the fact that she's my wife kind of says it all. So I won't go down a Jillian rabbit hole right now. No, I, I think it's interesting though. I was thinking about that before you came on and how a lot of the time that I have people on the show, we end up talking about their significant other because they play a relevant role in the process of you creating and how, how you're able to create. Yes. Well, she allows me a lot of leeway to create. I think that's one of the reasons we get along as well as we do, which is incredibly well, is that we're both very independent and she kind of gets the process. Like she gets when I have to, when I feel the urge to stay up all night painting, you know, she'll, she'll kind of go to bed and be like, oh, well, don't stay up all night. And when I inevitably do and come in at like three in the morning, she's cool with it. I am getting to the age where maybe, and Jillian and I are both getting to the age where maybe at some point we're going to actually start seriously considering having kids and you seem to do a wonderful job of having a wife and two kids who are how old now? Six and four. Six and four. That's a high energy age. Yeah, it's crazy. And yet you are out all the time in LA and you are high energy yourself and you're doing it and you have a successful art practice and you're churning out work. And I think I look up to you in that respect. I'm like, oh, it is. It's possible. That's nice, man. One can do that. Well, because I think a lot of people that I, I don't know, at least I was under the impression for a long time that to, to really dedicate myself to an art career, you have to sacrifice a lot of things. And I was really hoping that I mean, that it didn't mean I had to sacrifice having a family. I and, think in a lot of ways you do have to sacrifice things, it, but I think in 
the case of family, it tends to be that you're with people that understand what mm. you're doing or the, the approach you take to, to doing the art mm-hmm. or, or the work in general. If they're not 100% on board with where you're at with it, then they wouldn't be a part of it anyway. You wouldn't have that relationship and have be able to have the kids and do everything all at once. And you're training your kids from a young age to learn oh, yeah, how to They're, they're in the studio all the time, actually. Really? Yeah. Do you put yeah. them to work, like an assembly line? No, yeah. no. You know what? I If I'm building stuff and they're, they're taking an interest, I'll have them help me build the items. So go get me the supplies or the wood, or like I'll have a wood pile and I'm like, I need that piece. Go grab that or grab these tools and they bring me all the equipment and then we'll put it together together. They also come out and I'll set them up with a, a space over in the corner of the studio where they build their own sculptures. That's amazing. And they're going to get, I mean, the older they get and the more you teach them about using materials and tools, I mean, they're going to be the most invaluable studio assistants ever. It's funny you mentioned that because one of the pieces that I did for New York that I had in the last show in New York at uh, Zier and Smith was this funky little piece and I had like these uh, ping pong balls all over the place and Paul picked up a ping pong ball off the floor and went over and like I was what was I doing oh I was doing like FaceTime or something with somebody else about the studio and they said what is your what is your son doing in the background and he was placing the ball on top of the sculpture on the edge and they were like oh my god that's perfect and I looked and it was like in the perfect position so if you go to that piece and you look on the Paul place that object inside the piece that's amazing. I mean, that's like amazing, an amazing story for that piece in particular. Yeah. But like in yeah. general, it's like part of the studio process. It was the first piece that sold in the show too. Oh, wow. I Did, think it was the best sculpture in the show. That's He's got the touch. Yeah, I need to bring him in here and just have a little, I need to chain him to the desk. Just lock him in, close the garage door, close the door and be like. You'll be good. You're good. I put a little cot in the corner yeah. and there's some water there. Yeah. I'll bring the bread in the morning. Yeah, he probably actually would be pretty cool with that. I know I would have as a kid. So we did... Uh, we did a studio visit today. Yes. And I didn't, don't normally go do studio visits with people uh, before I do the podcast. Well, I feel like a lot of the people you do the podcast with, you maybe have more of a history with. You would think so. Okay. Some, some of them, yes. And other ones, no. I mean, like for us, we met uh, maybe two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And we went and ate about the spiciest food I think I've ever had at Gelada. Oh, yeah. Yes, that was crazy. Well, that's it's uh, my Jillian, my wife is in food media. So I learn about strange food things. And she, I think, took me there for the first time because maybe it was Jonathan Gold. He's a big fan of that place, but he officially declared that it had like the spiciest dish in L.A., and so I remember that was my big proponent. We're going back. Where I, was, I was like, guys. Well, we did it. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to blow our brains out with spice. I remember my gut was just in circles that whole time. Mm, good. It was fantastic. It cleans you out. Thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but my point being, that relationship is a lot like some of the other relationships that I have with the people that I have on. Some are closer, some are not. But I spend time with people, and these are the conversations I'd be having when I was doing like the dinners or whatever else anyway. Yeah. It's true. But I had not done a studio visit, and I think it was long overdue because the work in the studio was really uh, above and beyond what I thought I was going to see oh, wow. when I walked in there. Coming from a painting background, too, I'm super critical of other painters. I told uh, Caitlin, my wife, before I came out to the studio, I said, I showed her the, the painting that I had posted on Instagram of yours, and it's not complete yet. And I was like, yeah, he's really good, and I think he might be a better painter than I am. Which, like, I hadn't had that feeling. No, honestly, I hadn't had that feeling until I'd come back from China like a while ago and had visited uh, CAFA, Central Academy of Fine Art, 
where all they do is paint. They and get it, down in China. It, and it's like, just yeah. about that the aspect of technicality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, it has no heart, but yours has lots of heart. And there's, there's a lot of things going on in there. And because of that studio visit, now we'll go into it a little bit here because I took a bunch of notes. It informed my opinion of those paintings in a, in a sort of grandiose way. Mm-hmm. There is a sort of a dark undertone running throughout all of the work mm-hmm. that I had no idea was there. Okay, quick question. So speaking of dark undertones in painting, in China, do you think if they were allowed to, to paint subject matter of whatever they wanted, do you think it would, ha- they would have dark? I mean... Well, I think you do, you do have... I was there for like a month. So that's a, that's a national academy, right? Yeah, it's one of the best. It's like one of the top two. So is there like a communist party enforcer that goes around like being like, this is... I'm sure somebody regulates what's actually coming out of there, but uh, what is it? 7768 seven, is, I think it's 768, 758. Uh, it's the local uh, arts area, at least when I was there. This is a while ago. This has got to be 2006. Mm-hmm. So we're talking 10 years now. 798. There was artwork making political statements throughout that that entire area and through mm. artist studios and through gallery spaces. And, uh, and that was a time too, right before the Beijing Olympics. So they were cracking down at that time anyway. I think in school, it's probably not acceptable. And what I found is that you really, we, I had it at the end of their, their period. So we had um, the end of their grad program and their end of the regular undergrad program. So they had like a big show and they put sculptures up outside that were the production level and the scale of these things was just unbelievable. Like Chinese horsemen on horses and the horses were like just shells, but you could have been at any museum and seen these things as far as production level. Right. But the content was all regurgitated. So it felt like if something was edgy, you were looking at like a a Thomas Hershorn piece. Mm. It was, they're grabbing the information and just regurgitating something, but they're, skill level and the technicality and the things that they're doing is beyond anything. I I looked at some of the paintings there and I was like, I could be doing this for the next 10 years and maybe hit that point. Maybe. At least when I was there as well too, all of the artists there, they're in practice was working for other artists. Mm. Like the other, the older artists who were, you had a studio space inside of there where you were doing a giant painting and the painting was actually for this famous artist. Mm. So you had 30 art students knocking this thing out yeah and it's the size of uh it's probably 20 foot tall and like 100 foot long yeah but it's 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 like a production warehouse almost yeah Uh, i can't say what it's like now but of course you have chinese artists that are individual and producing works that are are critical of the government or or expressing like their own individual opinions and you see that when it's out of the school but in the school system itself from what i experienced it was not that at the time okay so Sorry to go off. No, no, no. Rabbit hole. But a good one. I, I haven't actually talked about that on the show yet. FYI to the public, there are going to be lots of rabbit holes <laughs> in this discussion. Today, when I walked into the studio and I looked at your paintings, was the first time since I was in China 10 years ago that I had looked at somebody's painting. And I was like, I could do that maybe in an extended period of time, but I'm not quite sure. I think he's probably a better painter than me. Well, thank you. I appreciate that compliment. I adopted a mindset a long time ago with many things that no matter what you do, there was always someone there is doing it better. Yeah. I don't know if that's proper grammar. I appreciate that very much. Well, I think for me though, I sort of got the sense of that before I went into the studio, seeing some of the stuff. I saw some works at the fair. What I didn't get was the, 
that undertone we were talking about yeah. before. So let's address that. And one of the interesting things that you had said to me was you don't deal, uh, you can rephrase this by the way, mm-hmm. uh, you don't deal with, with uh, approaching subject matter that is new. Yes. Well, de- that deals with current issues. Okay. Current that directly issue. deals with current okay, issues. Okay. So why don't you, why don't we talk about that? I think that comes from a mistrust of media in general. And of course, initially I'd go to like corporate media, but there are a degree of alternative media sources that I, you know, they come up with good points, but what's... Everything's jaded. Well, what's the validity of it? I mean, how how do you really know? Judging the information I get about current events today versus judging the information that I can attain about events that happened decades ago. And you're talking historical events. I am talking historical Uh, events. And historical events are very important to me because you can learn a lot about current events based on what you know. History repeats itself. Unfortunately, it does. And even if it doesn't repeat itself, you can kind of create an equation based on past events that can like clue you in to what's happening in current events. Um, but I do need a degree of chronological distance between myself and the subject that I'm tackling. There are a lot of events that happened in the past that we still don't know the full story, but we know a lot more about it now, or a lot more has come to light over decades than was initially exposed when the event happened. So you can fact check. Yeah, or fact checking has happened. I mean, I'm not going around doing the fact checking, but I'm definitely like investigating or reading stories or Things have been been declassified, or someone has done the investigation at some point. And how far back are you talking before you like deal with something? Cold War came up a lot. In- well, yeah, I, I definitely post post World War Two is kind of what I choose to deal with, or let's say World War Two and post World War Two. But to me, that was a line that I drew in what I was going to make paintings about because I guess I should say that a lot of the work um, it started out as being analyzing the role of fear in the American psyche. And I'd specifically say American because that is, I grew up in America and that's what I could relate to. And I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to assume the emotions of other nationalities or other areas of the world. But as you learn more about certain events in history, you realize that the emotions and actions of other countries, it's all interconnected. So I'd like to say the role of fear in the modern psyche. Um, but but when I think of and I, you know it's interesting what year does modern quote modern art start? But you'd say about like the forties, like around World War Two. Well, right, but it goes into sixties, right? Yeah, but I'm I'm more thinking about like what was the beginning? Yeah, and it's funny. I think they kind of align. I think like and like I'm not late thirties, okay. early forties. I yeah. I am no expert on that, by the way, but. Yeah, I, I need a bit of distance. I get more of an education that way. Whereas now, like I'm reading, you know, I'm I'm reading like countless websites or listening to lectures, and people people are just kind of spitballing a lot of times, and I don't know what to believe. And it may be a bit naive on my part. For current stuff, you mean? Yeah, it may be a bit naive on my part to assume that the validity of information about past events is stronger than about current events. But I don't know. I just feel better about it. Well, it's the whole thing: history written by the victor. Yeah, yes, but I think nowadays there's definitely a lot more people that are investigating the loser's story. Right. And I appreciate that. I think there's just a lot more spin on the stuff that I'm reading about current events than there is about past events. Talk a bit about um, Manifest Destiny. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we talked about that today. The only I bring it up because you, you had an interesting take. So in researching this aspect of American fear, which I kind of gave it the starting point of 
the Cold War in that the Cold War was really used, was manipulated by media and politicians for their personal gains. I think there was something to be scared of, and there still is something to be scared of. I mean, a lot of people are saying we're in like Cold War 2.0 with Putin doing, doing what he's doing now. I started to really explore the Cold War, and I got, I got into learning about what happened with Werner von Braun. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name right, but he was a Nazi scientist who was basically in charge of developing Germany's V-1 rocket program. And when we beat the Germans, there was this mad scramble between us and Russia to go into Germany and grab the scientists. And actually all the scientists wanted to come. If they were going to surrender to a side, they were going to want to surrender to America. So Von Braun wanted to come to America because life was not going to be good in Russia for him. Um, so he came here. We pardoned him for what we deemed his war crimes. We kind of brushed under the table or kept out of the public eye his involvement with the Nazi party. And he, in, in return, he developed our Apollo missile program and he had a strong hand along with a lot of other people in the development of the ICBM missile program. I, I don't really know his motivations in doing what he did in life, but he got a, he got a get out of jail card and he developed these things. And, and the Apollo program was great a big part of the Cold War. And the, and the Apollo program was also fueled by fear. You know, I think a lot of, pol- when they put Sputnik up, when Russia put Sputnik up, politicians use this as like, they gener- there was a fear about Sputnik and they used that as a way to gather public support right. for putting more money into the Apollo program. And I think there was already a fear of like nuclear warfare so that they didn't have to drum up more support for ICBM missiles. When he was done with his obligation to the US government, let's say, I think it was like the mid 60s, I believe one of the first jobs he got was consulting with Walt Disney to design Tomorrowland. I, explain what Tomorrowland uh, is. Tomorrowland, and I haven't been back to Disneyland in a long time, but I think there's a Tomorrowland in Disney World and Disneyland, but the first one in, was in Disneyland. It's a futuristic theme park scape. Right. It's pretty fantasy looking, but... Not I, just a George Clooney movie. Not just a George... And the George Clooney movie <laughs> did seem to not really adhere to... Tomorrowland of uh, Disney, yeah. Disneyland fans. It's like they had the name. They're like, hey, like yeah. we've got the marketing. We've got all the licensing on this name. Let's just make this weird movie with George Clooney. And Walt Disney, from my understanding, was a famously closeted or not closeted anti-Semite. So you have an anti-Semite working with an ex-Nazi. And he was not a nice guy either. Like he wasn't just in the Nazi party. He was like overseeing a bunch of shit. It's debatable. But yeah, he, so, okay. So the the rocket program he was in charge of, I believe was based in Munich. And when we discovered through intelligence means in World War II, we started bombing the heck out of Munich because this V-1 rocket was a real threat. I mean, it was the first rocket ever successfully made for military purposes. They basically moved the whole project into to a mountain range in Germany called the Hartz Mountains, H-A-R-Z. I don't know, if, again, if pronouncing that right. When they moved the operation over there to develop more of these rockets and build more of these rockets, they also put up this huge concentration camp. So obviously, and, and a lot of, of course, atrocities happened at this camp. I, I don't think they were like gassed like other camps, but I think they were worked to death. I think they were, all the projects happened in caves. So I think there was a lot of mining or excavating of caves happening. I think there were a lot of accidents, as happens with rocket research. And um, testing. And... Yeah. I think there's a lot of explosions. And, you know, why send in a soldier, a valuable soldier, and when you can send someone else in to light the fuse or whatever it may right. be. Von Braun was definitely aware of what was happening. But again, it's like it's he was in, in Germany, you know, like what is I don't know how much he could have done about it. He's part of the machine, right? Right. So. 
but I'm using him as a representation for very bad things in this in this equation. And there was so you got Walt Disney, you got Wonder Von Braun working together, and I started to see these parallels in these two different ideologies, which was Walt Disney to me was a strong representative of the idea of manifest destiny, which manifest destiny was one of our ration, America's rationales for spreading West and along the way spreading West, of course, killing a lot of Native Americans, conquering, conquering. And but it's your destiny to do so. So you're allowed. They believed it was their destiny. You know, might is right, I guess, at that time. So they did what they did. And it's hard to argue. I, who knows what would have happened if they hadn't thought that. But you can't get any more des- manifest destiny than Walt Disney because he went about as far west as you can get. He made as much money as you possibly could at that time. And it was later on. I mean, obviously, this guy went west way after the, the, the frontier days. But it still was like a modern day version of Manifest Destiny. And then you have that you compare that to the concept, which was a very similar concept, but it was the German or the Nazi concept of Lebensraum. And Lebensraum, uh, it either translates to breathing room or to living room. I think it actually might be living room. And I don't mean like living room in your house, but like room to live. And it was thought of by the Nazi party, from my understanding, as really... I don't know if it'd be an entitlement, but it was it was a valid reason to spread out through Europe, to conquer Europe in the way that America conquered its frontier. And so there's there's these two parallels between these ideologies. So I think that painting you were looking at was based on the opening sequence for the Disney movie now, right. which is actually a beautiful 3D animation rendering. Uh, when I was growing up, it was a blue background with a white castle, very simple animation. And now it's this, you start in the clouds and you pan back and you start to see mountain range and you start to see a river and there's a, a bridge and a train going and it's all very small and detailed it's not detailed but it's very small and you're it's far away but it's a beautiful scene always very dark though they sometimes correlate the color scheme to uh, whatever movie it's opening up for so like for tomorrowland for example i think there were like and there wasn't a train there was like a spaceship flying around or flying over the river for the Lone Ranger, they made it all like sepia tone. So the color scheme changes. and It does. And I'm working off of a black and white image. I chose to kind of create my own color in it. But I definitely, to me, after learning about Von Brown and Disney's relationship, those became the Hearts Mountains. And that became the scene. It was basically like Walt Disney creating the scene of Nazi Germany. But again, the colors I've chosen are kind of... But purples and there's like purples and blues and I think the 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 sunset in the back is very cadmium red. Well, the the thing that got me on a lot of the paintings as well too, and why they can be, they play light per se. Mm, yeah, because they're all the palette is uh, very pastel. Yes, there's a lot of sunset fades, for lack of a better term. Yeah, they're very beautiful. Yeah, everything is very picturesque. So that undertone is a sort of hidden thing in there. Well, I think... Unless you know the content. You know, the viewer can take what they want from it. You put hints in there, too. There are hints. There are hints. There, 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 there are visual elements put in to make people ask questions. There's, it's not, it's, there's subtle direction towards something else going on. And I think if you lived with the piece, you'd start asking questions about it. You know, the work was very figurative based for a long time. And that was, that's, an, that's almost like an easy way into it because you have someone and people, you have a face, people at some point. Well, it's easy. The it, thing sitting in front of you, you can represent what that is, mm-hmm. pass it by. They, they can get an easy read on it. Yes. They know exactly what they're dealing with. Yes. And we 
talked a bit about this too, you growing up, that's what art was to you. And it was to me as well. Yes. I mean, the, the figurative element in painting was that was drilled into my head as a young person. It was always, I'd say more than a still life or a landscape, the representation of the figure led me into ask who, you know, what's going on? Who is this? As I, and for some reason, who is this is more of a prevalent question than where is this? Do you mean the subject or what? Or what? Yes, the subject. And I'm just, because you saw a variety of work today. There was some, there was some, there was a landscape. There were some still lifes. I'll call still lifes or like borderline abstract pieces, but they're still lifes. Mm -hmm. And then there were a few, I think there were two figurative pieces. And I think there, if you came in the studio a year ago, there would have been pretty much all figurative pieces. Really? Yeah. And I think it was a little too easy. You know, immediately people are like, who is this? Who, what's, you know, who is this person and what are they about? And then that's right there. You start. It's probably the first question when people walk in when they when they come to a studio visit is like oh who's that person i want to know yes. is anyone that your grandma or is anyone that... worth their salt that is no i'm just kidding <laughs> it's all good you notice i did not ask that when i walked in <laughs> i know and i appreciate it. but you know you go about things a little differently jason i i do <laughs> which i respect but i you know for i think i just got a little bit uh it just was too easy you know and i wanted to i wanted to make it a little less direct i wanted people to ask questions to come about the process of asking questions a little more slowly if you go, everybody should go online and look at Jake's website, although it is sorely missing any CV. Yeah, I got it. You yeah. click on the CV Same. link and it's a blank page. And I, I know. I got to put it on there. I mean, half of that is because like my CV is super short, but the other half, I should just take a link off is what I should do as a, a. But the paintings that are on there, it, you don't have any of the, the recent ones that I saw in the studio today. No. A lot of those aren't finished, but. Well, in that. Okay. So that speaks to the studio process and that like I work on anywhere between like eight and 12 paintings at once. And I, can, I'm, I chalk it up to like the, the contemporary short attention span or something, but there's also... They also take you a long time to do. They do take, they, the rendering takes a long time, but there's also decision, the decision-making process that we all deal with where we're like, what's next? And sometimes you just can't drum that up out of nowhere. You have to just sit and brew on it. And I, I'm kind of a productive nut. So I feel like I have to have another painting to just jump over to. This is my interpretation after sort of walking out. Mm -hmm. You you were working on these sort of figurative works. Mm -hmm. Then it wasn't giving you what you needed necessarily in the the content of the work. It was part of a spectrum. Right. It, but it started I to it, broaden it. Right, but it led into these other things. Yes. Okay. So that okay the development of the work in that direction, so that they were primarily figurative works pretty dependent upon the historical narrative at that point. And I, for a long time, resisted. I felt like in art school and involvement with the art world that there was a, a, a pressure, a strong encouragement slash pressure to make <laughs> art about art. And while... And, and I, so you resisted it? I did resist it because I think there's like a larger existential crisis, not crisis, but an existential issue that I have with making art, which is what what good does it do? Like, what am I doing for the world? What am I, is this helping? It's very, it's very indulgent. And I think I have an issue with being indulgent. And I think that led me to create work that forced people to ask questions and to investigate these issues. That well, they're not so clear cut now. They're not so clear cut now. It's true. In a good way. They start, yeah, they started off as, <laughs> as pretty much straight up representational bainings. And what would happen is, I mean, and I was working on some of these for years and they would sit there for like six months not being touched and I was something wrong with it, w with certain pieces. And I was like, man, what is it? I can't figure it out. 
I finally, like at three in the morning, one day I'd be like, oh, that's the problem. Like, that's what's driving me nuts about that piece. Like, I just have to put, render out a certain object right there. And I'd be like, I don't have time for that right now because I'm like knee deep in this other painting. So I'm just going to put a piece of masking tape there. Blue mask. Blue masking tape. There were different color, but yeah, blue or like that weird beige. And I put it on. Sometimes these pieces would have up to like six pieces, six uh, actual pieces of masking tape on them. And then I put, it doesn't mean I'd go back into it the next day. Sometimes the masking tape would sit on there for three months, six months, and they would slowly start peeling off. Eventually I'd come in and the mat, there wouldn't be any masking tape. I'd look over and be like, God, that piece looks crazy. Like what's wrong with it? And be like, oh right, the masking tape fell off. And the masking tape through that process became like an absolutely became a part of the composition and a part of the piece to the part of the content. It, it, it happened. Unintentionally, it happened. It was a happy, a happy miracle, a happy mistake. There was a breakthrough moment for me when I rendered out in a hyper real way the masking tape. I was like, you know what? I'm so attached to this tape being here that I'm going to paint this piece of tape on and it's going to be, you know, content wise, totally different from the historical narrative that it is sitting on top of. But I'm going to do this. And that was the that was the moment that I kind of engaged in recognizing the studio process in my work. I think for a long time I was resisting that. And it, but it works so well because what it does is it I think you had said this earlier today, it creates this window or mm. this planar view. Yeah, or a lens. Someone, like, I, I, a, Somebody said that? Yeah. Somebody smart said that. Guy Dill. Venice artist Guy Dill. Shout out to Guy Dill. Okay. He, said, he said, it's like there's a lens. It's like there's a lens over the image. And it's absolutely correct. What it does is it creates this depth and not like a physical depth, but like a content aware depth mm-hmm. that you are aware of so many other things that are going on within the piece and it's not just a representation of something else right of a photocopy that you print out and are able to paint and we were talking about today that that's there's an anxiety i have about as a representational painter about like where is that line between fine art and illustration and And we both love illustration yeah i love illustration i grew up with illustration and maybe this is just being like subject to Subject to art world pressures a bit that kind of like seem to look down upon illustration that like I will never be an illustrator. I've never, I'm always going to push illustration away. I think one of the ways, one of the things that taped it, and it wasn't just tape, it actually branched out into a lot of other things. Sometimes it was marks, like on some of them, and I wish you would have seen that 20th Century Fox thing today, but there was a, a mouse cursor. Which is another painting you were working on. Yeah, that's another one. And it's out of the studio right now, but there was, there'd be like a mouse cursor with a shadow, by, with a shadow behind it. And it's basically... It's documenting the studio process and it's kind of taking into account all of these tools that I use in the studio. Well, what's funny about it to me is the thing that is sitting furthest back in the content of the piece mm-hmm. is that representational thing. And yeah. then as you get further forward, the thing that is the most honest and represents your studio practice, like you said, you wouldn't deal with anything that is current. Mm-hmm. The current things you're dealing with are you. Right. Right. So all those things that you're dealing with, trying to put this together and emotionally trying to figure out what you need to be doing, you're putting into the piece. Mm -hmm. And those are the only current aspects, but also they're in the foreground. Right. So all the things in the foreground are currently and they deal with you like emotionally and content wise and everything in the the background. The further you go back, the, the, the more time. Yeah, that's well, well put, sir. And that's something that I've thought of briefly before, but it's not something I focus on. I think I just, I'm like occupied with. Well, as soon as you do, then it would fail. It wouldn't read as honest. Okay, so I'm going to forget that you, I'm going to forget that you said that. (laughs) Wiped from memory, deleted. Yeah, so, all right, there is a story that we're going down with how the work developed. So there were two things that were starting to happen. There was the 
historical narrative element, and then there was that dealt with a form of anxiety. Um, was it your anxiety? It was my anxiety dealing it, with those issues. But but it was an anxiety that I felt I shared with everyone, with America. Right. This is what you were talking about, not just America, but like worldwide. Well, worldwide. You felt like a sense of, and needing to express that in some way and yeah. have a conversation with something other than yourself. Yes. You called it navel gazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, that was what I was resisting was that art world navel gazing, like making art about art and this kind of very insular, and- insular existence. So that, and that is a form of studio anxiety. I, I like to me, that was an anxiety as a yeah. painter that I was dealing yeah, yeah. with in the studio. So I had these two aspects of the work and one was the anxiety I was dealing with on a, um, a cultural level as far as like our history and, and just so much happening in modern day life that if you're an artist or not, everyone deals with when you turn on the news or turn on the radio or look at your digital device. Then there is this anxiety in the studio and they've started to kind of to intertwine to become one body of work. And that's very important to me. And it's it's weird because the art is definitely like therapy at this point. T- tackling these issues on this painting or on a painting, I feel so much better. Which is, oh. I think. <laughs> I was too close to the mic. Ooh. One of the, uh, which is so interesting about you because you represent a very chill and you're from LA. I'm from LA, everybody. And you surf like a motherfucker. Well, yes. I, yeah, <laughs> not as much anymore. I paint like a motherfucker now, but yeah, but, there I is mean, some you surfing are, that still happens. You were quintessential LA. When I met, I think, you know what? We were at Paramount Ranch and some dude took a photo of us and they were like, because the guy, it was a guy from W Magazine. Oh yeah. Well, I also had a a LA hat you on? had an LA hat on. That, no 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 but somebody told him they're like I want to take a picture of somebody from LA and they're like oh go look for Jake that he's was very LA someone said that yes that was what he said when he walked who said us. that I have no clue come forth you who said that come forth <laughs> I know who you are well that was ridiculous I was wearing this white that also I didn't look like myself that day because I had like a normal outfit on which is very generic but I had this white huge white hat on that has LA that lights up. Did I show you that? There's like a switch. No, yeah, yeah. Which, and which, that came from Night Gallery. That came right? from Mika Marple Night Gallery. Shout out to all the people at Night Gallery. But that's a cool hat. That's like that. Con- I don't. There's some guy that makes them. You don't. I, you don't need to give props to the hat. No, but that guy. He. It's like a thing he does. And I don't know if it's an artist <laughs> or a hat maker, but it's like this glowing. Anyways, but so I've, I I want to credit that photo that we were in to the hat man. Where were we going with this? We were going about LA being an LA artist. Yes. And how being an LA artist has affected my work. Okay. So, and well, and this idea of the anxiety, mm-hmm. like running is a constant, but you not representing that in your sort of outer life, well, dealing I, with it in the studio. That's an LA thing we were talking about earlier today. Like everyone is pretty chill and happy, but there's like an undercurrent that like, like any metropolis that people there is like, but it's a different undercurrent here. It is. It is a different undercurrent. And I, you know, I've just been, I lived in New York for a while, but I've been here for most of my life. So I'm almost like unaware of it at this point. So let's talk, let's talk about your life. You grew up where? I grew up in Marina Del Rey. I think there was one girl who lived on Jib Street. But other than that, I was like the only person under 
like 20 that lived in Marina del Rey. This is, and there were Marina del Rey. I grew up in a condo and it was beautiful. What year is this? This is uh, early I was, 90s, late, late 80s. I was born in 1980. So this is like, okay. I don't know, conscious thought started at like 85 <laughs> maybe. So like, yeah, let's say 85 onward. Um, but it was, you know, it's still weird. Marina del Rey is weird. There's not a lot of public parking there. It's like limited street parking. So you don't get an influx of like other world it's a lot of divorce it used to be a lot of divorcees and bachelors uh, so it's all dudes yeah or like old ladies but mm. not anymore not now it's just kind of yeah so it was like a older meat markety but it was also weird because all these buildings that are there now like it was all oil wells before and like weird wetlands and like on the, the water yeah not right on the water but like yeah pretty much right on the water like some of those houses that are right on the beach there's a big beach there like anybody you, who's not from here marina del rey is below y'all don't need to go to marina del rey you're gonna but be but it's okay. below okay so you have like santa monica then you have venice and then marina del rey and mm -hmm. then like lax yeah so it's kind of a weird no man's land i think it was actually all marshland at some point and then it was in the 70s it was turned into like the largest man-made marina in america you know, it's not a harbor, it's a marina, and I think it's the largest one. And so I, when did you, did you go to undergrad out here, or what did you do? No, I've only, no, I went to undergrad in New York. You did? So yeah. when did you leave L.A.? 99. Out of high school? Yeah, out of high school. And where'd you go? NYU. Yeah. Why, why? Why did, what, 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 what punctuation you... did I put behind NYU? Was that a question mark? <laughs> NYU. And New York was great. Um, Did I, you do that because you needed to get out of L.A.? No, I knew from a young age that I was going to move to New York. Like I, New York was the... I remember watching 411 Skate Video Magazine and watching, like, with my friends and watching people do flip tricks. Right, and you grew that, up as a little Astor punk skater. Place and... Yeah, I mean, that, again, that's a very L.A. I mean, I, the skateboard thing is just L.A. in general, but, like, the skate, surf, graffiti thing, it's very, like, L.A. coastal area. It was a great... I had a great... It was a great upbringing. And NYU was great. I was basically, I found a New York mother, Maureen Gallus. What the hell does that mean? It means there was this person who taught me. She was a teacher for many years at NYU. Like a mentor. She was a mentor, but she had just, Maureen had just, are you familiar with her work? No. She's from Connecticut and she makes these awesome paintings. She shows with 303 and Overdoing and Co. Really? Yeah. And she makes these very small paintings of like houses in Connecticut in the snow. It kind of thing that you might see it like um i don't know i don't want to label it but you might see it at like a nice a, a cute home she was in the whitney biennial a few years like maybe six years ago really eight years ago yeah so she became a mentor for you in new york she became a mentor she was the one that taught NYU me about or? layering i didn't know what layering was so i'd show up with a oh, t-shirt no in like dressing that's what i'm saying like because <laughs> you're <laughs> You're talking about like a mentor, and I'm like, nah. She was more than a mentor. She was. She had just finished a she year. She was like a mom. Yeah, she was like a mom. But 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 she's gonna hate that man. You know what? Let me retract that. She was spirit guide because I think I okay. said that once, and she was like, no no no. Hey Cause, motherfucker. Because she's not that much older than me, but she was just she was very nurturing. But I remember I kept showing up to class. A.S. showed up late all so the time. So NYU, she taught at NYU. Yeah, and she I'd show up late every time, and she'd be like it's okay, you're from LA. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Which is true. Well, yes, she'd just gotten off of teaching for a year at UCLA. So she was very aware. And yes, she was like, it's a little different out there. And that was the first time I think I was like, oh, like someone had really kind of broke down that like your things are different in LA. Completely. Than, especially then in New York, but then a lot of places. She, yeah, she was amazing. I think she was, uh, as far as the education experience at NYU, she was probably, she was, I still talk to her to this day, and I'm a huge fan and very indebted to her. That's great. How long were you there? What did you do after you got out of undergrad? 
I hung around for a little bit after I got out of undergrad, but it was pretty, I, it was, I was going to have to get a job. And I think the level of alcohol, the level of consumption was pretty high. You were I mean, a kid. It was a kid, but I, I, yeah. And I knew that I had to buckle down and get a job. I think financially, I really had to like get my ducks in a row. And I, I knew just expense wise, and it was going to be easier in LA just because I wouldn't, I wouldn't be going out to bars in LA like I was in New York. And I came back and I got a job pretty quickly um, working at a gallery. And back, this is in the mid, two, this is 2005, I think, worked at this gallery called Bobby Greenfield Gallery. And she has since retired. I think she lives in like Aspen or something now, but it was at Bergamot Station in mid 2000s LA. There was Which pretty, was the, Bergamot Station was like the height of. Well, there, well, yes, it was like there were a lot of established, quote, established galleries there. And there was like a scene. I mean, to this, it, I was it was not exciting to me, but it was a great workplace to be in. But I mean, like suit and tie. Those were my suit and tie days, not tie, but suit days. I worked my way up. I think I started as like a gallery assistant and, you know, I'd wake up, go surf in the morning. Healthy lifestyle. Wake up, go surf in the mornings, go to work, come back, try to dribble out some painting and go to sleep early. And it was like. There was probably three years of my life doing that, four years of my a life. A long time. It was a long time. I mean, they bumped me up to like associate director and I was doing- So you were selling work? Yeah. I was like- Really? An, yeah. And I was like, I was like, this is fun. This is exciting. I'm like an art dealer and a lot of experience. You know, we did some art fairs. They took me to New- We went to New York, which was always disastrous. It was like putting the creature back in the wild again. I don't and know. you go fucking crazy. I would go nuts. It was bad. I'm surprised I didn't get fired, but they were cool. Yeah, <laughs> they were really cool. Um, but I got a lot of experience there. And uh, but it was really apparent, I think, by the mid by I think I was 26. 20, yeah. Then I was like, dude, these are pre baby pre mortgage years. I got to get out of here. Like, I really want to be a painter. I want right. to I just I don't even I want to paint. And I had no time to paint. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to, I'm going to bounce out of this gallery and I'm going to get a part-time job working for an artist. I'll figure it out. I had some money saved up. This, there's a wonderful couple named Ed, Ed Hamilton and Pat Squires that own, along with Ed Rocher, they own Hamilton Press on Abbot Kinney in Venice. Uh, Ed Hamilton is an incredible printmaker. And at the gallery, we sold a lot of Ed Rocher prints. Um, so, and I dealt with so you knew Hamilton Press. Yeah, they're really cool. Uh, like, and they make great, they make incredible work, um, but they're really cool people. And they knew Raymond Pettibone. Honestly, I was more familiar with Raymond Pettibone through like surfing magazines. And I was like, oh, Wait, yeah, was he a surfer? Yeah, well, no, he's a body, yes. He, well, he knows how to surf. He's not, he's more of a body surfer, I would say. Why was he in surfing magazines? Because he's famous for doing those wave drawings. Oh. Everyone wants the wave drawing. Oh, gotcha, Can I get gotcha, a wave gotcha. drawing? And he doesn't want to do them anymore because they're boring at this point to him. Yeah. So that started. And I was like, we, you know, you they, got a job with Raymond. Well, they were like Raymond needs an assistant. And I think I was like, okay, like whatever, I'll try it out. It was, I could, I could walk to work. It was crazy. Or in like, Venice or where was Yeah. It? He has a, he had a house in Venice and it was wild. You know, I'm not going to go into crazy Raymond details, but like. How long did you work for him? I worked for Raymond for like five and a half years. That's a long time. Yeah. And I, it was a dream job because like Raymond, you know, he, he paid really well. It was very flexible with hours as far as when you went in, which was great for surfing. Now, Raymond, surf's pumping. I'm not going to be in until 
you know, later. And he's like, oh, whatever. He, he didn't know what day of the week it was, what time of day it was. Right. It was like there, if there was any pressure for time or dates, it was more from the galleries. But it was an intense five years. It was because Raymond's an intense dude he, yeah. and he, he, he's, he's very nice. And I think Raymond, I will credit Raymond. I learned a lot from Raymond as far as work ethic. Is he all, in the studio all the time? All the time. It's studio is life. He lives in the studio. I mean, that's like what would happen no matter even if he, we got Sean Regan got him a separate studio that was like walking distance to the house and he just never went back to the house. It was crazy. I would show up to, when I first started working for him, I showed up to work and you could not walk anywhere in the house without stepping on a drawing. Like literally. It was just all over the place. Yeah. So the first several months. It's pretty amazing. It is. I mean, he's. he's, And also very tense. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But he's, you know, talk about sacrifice for art. Like that guy, he sacrifices his health and his body, you know, and and for his art, he just cranks it out. And he's, he's, he's a, he's genius level brain. And he stores so much knowledge in his head. I learned so much from him. He definitely put me on a path of like, yeah, I wouldn't call it conspiracy theorist, but like he put me on a path of real questioning. Right. And not just from him, from the stories he told, but from just cataloging. You know, there were, there were all these ripped magazine pages or book pages ripped out or just the books around, like the literature li- hanging around him that he had just hoarded or his dad had hoarded over years. And I would just take this stuff home and read it and then bring it back. It was like the most amazing lending library ever. Do you still talk to him? No, no, he doesn't really want to talk to anyone, you know, and that was something I think I'll email, I'll email, but yeah. even, even that's fallen as I've gotten, just but he's gotten pretty busy. insular. He's very insular. He just wants to be left alone. And he wants to make the work. That's all like, that's yeah. one thing I learned about Raymond. He just wants to be left alone. And he has a, he has a wonderful wife and a beautiful f- child in New York. He moved to New York. Oh, he did. Yeah. That, that's, that is why wow, I'm that's painting. that's a drastic change. Well, that's why I'm painting now because he, I would still be working for him oh, today. That's when you. Left. Well, he was incredibly, I think he knew, I worked for him for a while and, and he was with his pregnant wife in New York and he was like, it's cool, going to be bi-coastal. And then after a while, it was pretty obvious he wasn't coming back in LA. I was just sitting in the studio. There was nothing to do. And he was still paying you. Yeah. And it was, it was, so we worked it out. I was like, this is crazy. You're not coming back to LA. I was like, you know, I'll totally just find another job. And he was like, oh, and he gave me an incredibly generous, I guess it would call like a severance package. Right. And that started like having that financial freedom. And this is a whole other conversation about like the socioeconomic like deal in art and that like you really need time. And I, I, I was never financially able to go to grad school and I just worked in the art world all through my 20s. And if you don't have the time to actually make the work. Yeah. I mean, grad school is good for so many reasons. But one of the, the main things is just, you just sit and make the work. That's the, that's the biggest thing for me. I had two years to just make. Yeah. That's it. And I had that experience. It's easy to get knowledge. I was easy, it was really easy for me to ask people and do research and find out about things. That was never a hard part or get people's opinions about the work. But it was just making the work because it's labor intensive work. And he basically set me up financially for a year and I just painted. And then, it's really generous. And then it just started to roll. And there's a we were talking about like a hunger earlier today. Well, we were talking about. Well, yeah, but I don't more appropriately. There's a hunger i wanted to paint for years well between you and me we were talking about how bad we want it yes yeah and there's a there's for years i wanted to paint and i couldn't paint and i was around artists and i saw people painting and and there was no jealousy or anything like that but i was like someday someday i'm gonna i'm gonna make painting and i was learning so much i mean it was definitely working in the art world was an incredible experience and now i'm just so 
genuinely ecstatic and pumped to be making paintings. Like I can't, every morning I wake up and I, like, I think it's a dream. It's crazy. And well, I, we were talking about, you were talking about family earlier and like mm-hmm. sacrificing things or doing, it's that hunger that drives you to do 800 things at once and mm-hmm. stay up till the wee hours of the morning. And you want it so bad, mm-hmm. but also those are the people who are left standing after everybody else sort of quit. Yeah. I don't know how you were growing up, but I've been, I've been drawing since I was like a little kid, since right? I could hold a pencil Same. in my hand. So I think, you know, no matter what happens in life, I'll always have a pen and doodling. I, you know, and I don't know what I attribute that to. And I don't know what other people attribute that drive to. I think I, I grew up, I was an only, I had some half siblings that were much older than me, but I grew up pretty much by myself. So, and I had a great childhood, but I learned to entertain myself and I grew up reading comic books and you just start at a certain point, you just start drawing, you know, and then you're a teenager and you can't, you can't, I couldn't get nudie magazines. So you just start drawing naked girls, <laughs> it's, you know, and it just goes through the ages. Um, at some point, I'll, maybe I'll be drawing food, you know, at some point. What, when what are you Because <laughs> you're a wife? No, no, no. I mean, like when, when I get too old and fat and like I can't. And oh, you I, can't move and out I of anything? I can't eat that meatball sandwich. Maybe I'll be drawing that. Oh, the sandwich. residual. Yeah. Like the half a meatball sandwich. Yes. I'm really pumped about uh, just painting in general. But I think it's been it's been an interesting path. I like to live vicariously through people who are taking a route different than me. It's I, I was raised to be very fiscally conservative. Yeah. But when other people, I'm like, do it, man. Just spend that money. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. Well, I, I also think, though, you were in a position where you have a lot of things on the horizon that are very good for you in your art career and like what you're doing. Well, there's hope. It's you just I never know what's going to happen until it actually happens. And maybe that's, it's funny. I know a lot of people that work in Hollywood and there's all these, like you got a lot of deals coming and like so much stuff. I don't count on anything until it's fucking set in stone and it actually happens. Right. But it's weird when you have to work, you have to like, you have to plan for it. You're like, okay, this is going to happen. And you just, you know, you're, I'm, you're counting on I'm hustling, dude. I'm trying to make paintings. No, you are. And I can see that, but like in a way that is not the work holds up over everything else. It's really, I appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, it was interesting, and this is something that we talk about that hunger is I think when I just started painting after Raymond went to New York and I realized you, you do network and you meet a lot of people through working in the art world yeah, and absolutely. that is nice, but I kind of realized I've just been in the studio for three months and like I have been to some openings, but I kind of realized like half the job is is really engaging the art world. Without a doubt. And I kicked it it's in. It's being the, present. Yes, it is being present. And I kind of I, I kind of realized all of a sudden like whoa the LA art scene it just exploded. So when I moved back from New York, one of the reasons I'm moving back is to like be near the ocean and near nature. That was like a that was something I was like sacrificing a degree of art what I felt a degree of like art world hope by being on the west side. Yeah, well, no, by being it's in LA, man. That's I was like true. I was like I'm moving back to the country. Right, right. I was like, the upside is I get to like hop in the ocean every morning or in the evening, just real quick, even if it's just a quick dip to like, give me that, that perspective. I was like, I'm going to live where I always wanted to live, which was Venice. It's a long way to go to all these galleries. Right. But so a long, nothing, if you don't live in LA, it's hard to understand that. But the West side is not where the galleries are. No, it's not. And it might, you know, an ultimatum I gave myself was if I live far enough from the ocean that I can't ride my bike. I'm just gonna move back to New York. But I'm really excited about the LA art world. It's just, the energy is fun. There's so much to do. Uh, Jake, we're gonna leave it at that. We're wrapping it up. Did we cover all the points you wanted to cover? 
Because this was, I had the, I, the vision. I think so, yeah. Okay, I had the vision of this being a rambling, like a a, a weird, twisty, turny, like an Alice in, in Wonderland. I think it was podcast. a little bit. Okay, good. I think we did that a bit. Well, it was a, dude, this is incredible. Your studio, everyone who has not seen Jason Baylor Live Studio, I'm, we're having this conversation. And I was telling Jason earlier, I feel like I'm in the last <laughs> scene of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Is that it? Where I have to pick, pick wisely. You know, I have to pick the goblet that's going to heal my wound. So this is, it's incredible. <laughs> There's so many beautiful objects here and it are, it's, you guys have to come over here. I would love to come back and interview you on your podcast oh, about your work. Cause a lot of times I listen to these podcasts and you start to talk about your process a little bit. I, think I it, shut it down pretty quick. It's good in the realm of podcasts that you do that. <laughs> but a lot of times I'm like, Oh, like I get why you're doing it. You're kind of, that's how you relate to whatever this other person is talking about, you know, and how you bring, well, you got to give somebody else their time, right? Yes. And I think, but I think some, I'm not saying I'm, I need to do the job. I, I would love to No, you are totally welcome to come back and do okay, that. But we need to do a Jason Beller Lash episode. I would love that. That's great. Yeah. Cause this is proper in here. And thank you for having me. I feel very honored and thank you everyone for listening. And I'll hope to see you all soon. You're so nice. <laughs> okay, Jake. Thanks, dude. Thanks, man.